Alright, welcome back. So this is chapter 3 of Satan Revolution, Experience of the Paris Commune of 1871, Marx's Analysis. 1. What made the Communards attempt heroic? It is well known that in the autumn of 1870, a few months before the Commune, Marx warned the Paris workers that any attempt to overthrow the government would be the folly of despair. But when, in March of 1871, a decisive battle was forced upon the workers and they accepted it, when the uprising had become a fact, Marx greeted the proletarian revolution with the greatest enthusiasm in spite of unfavorable auguries. Marx did not persist in the pedantic attitude of condemning an untimely movement, as did the ill-famed Russian renegade from Marxism, Plekhanov, who in November 1905 wrote encouragingly about the workers' and peasants' struggle, but after December 1905 cried, liberal fashion, quote, they should not have taken up arms, end quote. Marx, however, was not only enthusiastic about the heroism of the communards, who, as he expressed it, quote-unquote, stormed heaven, although the mass revolutionary movement did not achieve its aim. He regarded it as a historic experience of enormous importance, as a certain advance of the world proletarian revolution, as a practical step that was more important than hundreds of programs and arguments. Marx endeavored to analyze this experiment, to draw tactical lessons from it, and re-examine his theory in light of it. The only quote-unquote correction Marx thought was necessary to make to the Communist Manifesto he made on basis of the revolutionary experience of the Paris Commune. The last preface to the new German edition of the Communist Manifesto, signed by both its authors, is dated June 24, 1872. In this preface, the authors Karl Marx and Frederick Engels say that the program of the Communist Manifesto, quote, has in some details become out of date, end quote, and go on to say, quote, one thing especially was proved by the Commune, viz. that the workers cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, end quote. The authors took the words that are in single quotation marks in this passage from Marx's book, The Civil War in France. Thus, Marx and Engels regarded one principle and fundamental lesson of the Paris Commune as being of enormous importance that they introduced it as an important correction to the Communist Manifesto. Most characteristically, it is this important correction that has been distorted by the opportunists, and its meaning probably is not known nine-tenths, if not ninety-nine-hundredths of the readers of the Communist Manifesto. We shall deal with this distortion more fully further on, in a chapter devoted specifically to distortions. Here it will be sufficient to note that the current vulgar quote-unquote interpretation of Marx's famous statement just quoted is that Marx here allegedly emphasizes the idea of slow development in contradiction to the seizure of power and so on. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is the case. Marx's idea is that the working class must break up, smash the ready-made state machinery, and not confine itself merely to laying hold of it. On April 12, 1871, i.e., just at the time of the Commune, Marx wrote to Kugelman, quote, if you look up the last chapter of my 18th Brumar, you will find that I declare the next attempt of the French Revolution will no longer, as before, to transfer the bureaucratic machi military machine from one hand to another, but smash it. 
Marx's italics, the original is Zubrukin. And this is the pre precondition for every real people's revolution on the continent. And this is what our heroic party comrades in Paris are attempting. Uh, New Zet, volume 20, 1, 1901-02, page 709. The letters of Marx to Kugelman have appeared in Russian no less than two editions, one of which I edited and supplied with a preface. The words, quote, to smash the bureaucratic military machine, end quote, briefly express the principal lesson of Marxism regarding the tasks of the proletariat during a revolution in relation to the state. And this is the lesson that has not only completely ignored but positively distorted by the prevailing Kotskyite interpretation of Marxism. As for Marx's reference to the 18th Brumar, we have quoted the relevant passage in full above. It is interesting to note in particular two points in the above-quoted argument of Marx. First, he restricts his conclusion to the continent. This was understandable in 1871, when Britain was still the module of a purely capitalist country, but without militarist clique, and to a considerable degree without a bureaucracy. Marx, therefore, excluded Britain, where a revolution, even a people's revolution then, seemed possible, and indeed was possible, without the precondition of destroying ready-made state machinery. Today, in 1917, at the time of the first great imperialist war, this restriction made by Marx is no longer valid. Both Britain and America, the biggest and last representatives in the whole world of Anglo-Saxon quote-unquote liberty, in the sense that they had no militarist cliques and bureaucracy, have completely sunk into the all-European filthy bloody morass of bureaucratic military institutions, which subordinate everything to themselves and suppress everything. Today, in Britain and America too, the, quote, precondition for every real people's revolution, end quote, is the smashing and the destruction of the ready-made state machinery, made up and brought to the European general imperialist perfection in those countries in the years 1914 to 17. Secondly, particular attention should be paid to Marx's extremely profound remark that the destruction of the bureaucratic military state machine is the, quote, precondition for every real people's revolution, end quote. This idea of a, quote, real people's revolution seems strange coming from Marx, so that the Russian Politeknovs and Mensheviks, those followers of Struve, who wish to be regarded as Marxists, might possibly declare such an expression to be a slip of the pen on Marx's part. They have reduced Marxism to such a state of wretchedly liberal distortion that nothing exists for them beyond the antithesis between bourgeois revolution and proletarian revolution, and even this antithesis they interpret in an utterly lifeless way. If we take the revolutions of the 20th century as an example, we shall, of course, have to admit that the Portuguese and the Turkish revolutions are both bourgeois revolutions. Neither of them, however, is a people's revolution, since in neither does the mass of the people, their vast majority, come out actively, independently, with their own economic and political demands to any noticeable degree. By contrast, although the Russian bourgeois revolution of 1905-7 displayed no such brilliant success 
at a time fell to the Portuguese and Turkish revolutions. It was undoubtedly a quote-unquote real people's revolution since the mass of the people, their majority, the very low, lowest social groups crushed by oppression and the exploitation, rose independently and stamped on the entire course of the revolution, the imprint of their own demands, their attempt to build their own way, a new society in place of the old society that was being destroyed. In Europe, in 1871, the proletariat did not constitute the majority of the people in any country on the continent. A people's revolution, one actually sweeping the majority into its stream, could be such only if it embraced both the proletariat and the peasants. These two classes then constituted the quote-unquote people. These two classes are united by the fact that the bureaucratic military state machine oppresses, crushes, exploits them. To smash this machine, to break it up, is truly the interest of the people, of the majority of the workers and most of the peasants, is the precondition for a free alliance of the poor peasant and the proletarians, whereas without such an alliance, democracy is unstable and social transformation is impossible. As well known, the Paris Commune was actually working its way towards such an alliance, although it did not reach its goal of owning to a number of circumstances, internal and external. Consequently, in speaking of a quote-unquote real people's revolution, Marx, without in the least discounting the special features of the petty bourgeois, he spoke in great detail about them and often, took strict account of the actual balance of class forces in most of the continental countries of Europe in 1871. On the other hand, he stated that the quote-unquote smashing of the state machine was required by the interests of both the workers and the peasants that united in them that it placed before them the common task of removing the quote-unquote parasite and of replacing it by something new. By what exactly? Part 2. What is to replace the smashed state machine? In 1847, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx's answer to this question was as yet a purely abstract one. To be exact, it was an answer that indicated he tasks, but not the way of accomplishing them. The answer given in the Communist Manifesto was that this machine was to be replaced by, quote, the proletariat organized as the ruling class, end quote, by the, quote unquote, winning of the battle of democracy. Marx did not indulge in utopias. He expected the experience of the mass movement to provide the reply to the question as to the specific forms this organization of the proletariat as the ruling class would assume, and as to the exact manner in which this organization would be combined with the most complete, most consistent winning of the battle of democracy. Marx subjected the experience of the commune, meager as it was, to the most careful analysis in the civil war in France. Let us quote the most important passages of this work. All of the following quotes in this chapter, with one exception, are, cited, are so cited. Originating from the Middle Ages, there developed in the 19th century the centralized state power with its ubiquitous organs of standing army, police, bureaucracy, clergy, and judicature. With the development of class antagonisms between capital and labor, state power assumed more and more char of the character of public force organized for the suppression of the working class, of a machine of class rule. 
After every revolution which marks an advance in the class struggle, the purely coercive character of the state power stands out in bolder and bolder relief. After the revolution of 1848-49, state power became, quote, the national war instruments of capital against labor, end quote. The Second Empire consolidated this, quote, the directed antithesis to the empire was the commune, end quote. It was the specific form of a republic that was not only to remove the monarchical form of class rule, the class rule itself. What was this specific form of the proletarian socialist republic? What was the state it began to create? The first decree of the commune, therefore, was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people. End quote. This demand now figures in the program of every party calling itself socialist. The real worth of their program, however, is best shown by the behavior, the behavior of our social revolutionists and Mensheviks, who right after the revolution of February 27th refused to carry out this demand. Quote, the commune was formed of the municipal councillors chosen by universal suffrage in the various wards of the town, responsible and revocable at any time. The majority of its members were naturally working men or acknowledged representatives of the working class. The police, which until then had been an instrument of the government, was at once stripped of its political attributes and turned into the responsible and at all times revocable agent of the commune. So were the officials of all other branches of administration. From the members of the commune downward, the public service had to be done at workmen's wages. The privileges and the representation allowances of the high dignitaries of the state disappeared along with the high dignitaries themselves. Having once gotten rid of the standing army and the police, the instruments of physical force of old government, the commune, proceeded at once to break the instrument of spiritual suppression, the power of the priests. The judicial functionaries lost that sham independence. They were forced thenceward to be elective, responsible, and revocable. End quote. The commune, therefore, appears to have replaced and smashed the state machine only by fuller democracy. Abolition of the standing army, all officials to be elected and subject to recall. But as a matter of fact, this only signifies a gigantic replacement of certain institutions by other institutions of a fundamentally different type. This is exactly a case of quantity being transformed into quality. Democracy, introduced as fully and consistently as it is at all conceivable, is transformed from bourgeois into proletarian democracy. From the state, equals a special force for the suppression of a particular class, into something which is no longer the state proper. It is necessary to suppress the bourgeois and crush their resistance. This was particularly necessary for the commune, and one of the reasons for its defeat was that it did not do this with sufficient determination. The organ of suppression, however, is here the majority of the population, and not a minority, as was always the case under slavery, serfdom, and wage slavery. And since the majority of people itself suppresses its oppressors, a special force for suppression is no longer necessary. In this sense, the state begins to wither away. Instead of the special institutions of a privileged minority, privileged officialdom, the chiefs of the standing army, the, ma the majority itself can directly fulfill all these functions. 
and the more the functions of the state power are performed by the people as a whole, the less need there is for the existence of in this power. In this connection, the following measures of the commune emphasized by Marx are particularly noteworthy. The abolition of all representation allowances and all monetary privileges to the officials. The reduction of the remuneration of all servants of the state to the level of quote-unquote workmen's wages this shows more clearly than anything else the turn from bourgeois to proletarian democracy from the democracy of the oppressors to that of the oppressed classes from the state as quote-unquote special force for the suppression of a particular class to the suppression of the oppressors by the general force of the majority of people the workers and the peasants and it is on this particularly striking point, perhaps the most important as far as the problem of the state is concerned, that the ideas of Marx have been most completely ignored. In popular commentaries, the number of which is legion, this is not mentioned. The thing done is to keep silent about it, as if it were a piece of old-fashioned naivete, just as Christians, after their religion had been given the status of state religion, quote-unquote, forgot the naivete of primitive Christianity with its democratic revolutionary spirit. The reduction of the remuneration of high state officials seems simply a demand of naive, primitive democracy. One of the quote-unquote founders of modern opportunism, the ex-social democrat Edward Bernstein, had more than once repeated the vulgar bourgeois jeers as quote-unquote primitive democracy. Like all opportunists, and like the present Kotskyites, he did not un at all understand, first of all, the transition from capitalism to socialism is impossible without a certain reversion to quote-unquote primitive democracy. For how else can the majority and then the whole population, without exception, proceed to discharge state functions? And that, secondly, quote-unquote primitive democracy, based on capitalism and capitalist culture, is not the same primitive democracy in prehistoric and or pre-capitalist times. Capitalist culture has created large-scale production, factories, railways, the postal service, telephones, etc. And on this basis, the great majority of the functions of the old state power have become so simplified and can be reduced to such exceedingly simple operations of registration, filing, and checking that they can be easily performed by every literate person, can quite easily be performed for ordinary quote-unquote worksmen's wages, and that these functions can and must be stripped of every shadow of privilege, of every semblance of official grandeur. All officials, without exception, elected and subject to recall at any time, their salaries reduced to the level of ordinary quote-unquote workmen's wages, these simple and self-evident democratic measures, while completely uniting the interests of the workers and the majority of the peasants, at the same time serve as a bridge leading from capitalism to socialism. These measures concern the reorganization of the state, the purely political reorganization of society. But of course, they acquire their full meaning and significance only in connection with the, quote, expropriation of the expropriators, end quote either bring accomplished or in preparation, i.e. with the transformation of capitalist private ownership of the means of production into social ownership. Quote, the commune, Marx wrote, 
made the catchword of all bourgeois revolutions cheap government a reality by abolishing the two greatest sources of expenditure, the army and the officialdom, end quote. From the peasants as the former sections of the petty bourgeois, only an insignificant few, quote, rise to the top, quote, or get on top of the world in bourgeois sense, i.e., become either well-to-do bourgeois or officials in secure and privileged positions. In every capitalist country where there are peasants, as there are in most capitalist countries, the vast majority of them are oppressed by the government and long for its overthrow. Long for cheap government, this can be achieved only by the proletariat, and by achieving it, the proletariat at the same time takes a step towards the socialist reorganization of the state. Part 3. Abolition of Parliamentarianism Quote, The Commune, Marx wrote, was not to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time. Ellipses. Quote, Instead of deciding once in three or six years which member of the ruling class was to represent and replace and repress the people in Parliament, universal suffrage was to serve the people constituted in communes, as individual suffrage serves every other employer in the search for workers, foremen, and accountants for his business." End quote. Owing to the prevalence of social chauvinism and opportunism, this remarkable criticism of parliamentarianism in 1871 also belongs now to the quote-unquote forgotten words of Marxism, the professional cabinet ministers and parliamentarians, the traitors to the proletariat, and the quote-unquote practical socialists of our day have left all criticisms of parliamentarianism to the anarchists, and, on this wonderfully reasonable ground, they denounce all criticisms of, all criticism of parliamentarianism as quote-unquote anarchists? It is not surprising that the proletariat of the quote-unquote advanced parliamentary countries discussed with such socialists as the Shademans, Davids, Legions, Simbots, Reynolds, Hendersons, Vandervades, Stunnings, Brantings, Bissolades, and Co. has been with increasing frequency giving its sympathies to anarcho-syndicalism in spite of the fact that the latter is merely the twin brother of opportunism. For Marx, however, revolutionary dialectics was never the empty fashionable phrase, the toy rattle, which Plekhanov, Kotsky, and others have made it. Marx knew how to break with anarchism ruthlessly for its inability to make even use of the pigsty of bourgeois parliamentarianism, especially when the situation was obviously not revolutionary. But at the same time, he knew how to subject parliamentarianism to genuinely revolutionary proletarian criticism. To decide once every few years which members of the ruling classes to repress and crush the people through parliament, this is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarianism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies, but also in the most democratic republics. But if we deal with the question of the state, and if we consider parliamentarianism as one of the institutions of the state, from the point of view of the tasks of the proletariat in this field, what is the way out of parliamentarianism? How can it be dispensed with? Once again, we must say, the lessons of Marx based on the study of the commune have been so completely forgotten that the present-day quote-unquote social democrat, i.e. present-day class traitor to socialism, 
really cannot understand any criticisms of parliamentarianism other than anarchist or reactionary criticism. The way out of parliamentarianism is not, of course, the abolition of representative institutions and the elective principle, but the conversion of the representative institutions from taking shops into working bodies. Quote, the commune was to be a working, not parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time, end quote. Quote, a working, not parliamentary body, end quote. This is a blow straight from the shoulder at the present day, parliamentarian countrymen. From America to Switzerland, from France to Britain, Norway, and so forth. In these countries, the real business of the quote-unquote state is performed behind the scenes and is carried on by the departments, chancelleries, and general staffs. Parliament is giving up to talk for the special purpose of fooling the quote-unquote common people. This is so true that even in the Russian Republic, a bourgeois democratic republic, all these sins of parliamentarianism came out at once, even before it managed to set up a real parliament. The heroes of rotten Philistinianism, such as the Sokobolevs and the Sertelis, the Chernovs and Aksetekevs, I don't know, sorry have even succeeded in polluting the Soviets after the fashion of the most disgusting bourgeois parliamentarianism, in converting them into mere talking shops. In the Soviets, the quote-unquote socialist ministers are fooling the credulous rustics with phrase-mongering and resolutions. In the government itself, a sort of permanent shuffle is going on in order that, on the one hand, as many socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks as possible may get a turn to get near the quote-unquote pie, the lucrative and honorable posts, and that, on the other hand, the quote-unquote attention of the people may be quote-unquote engaged. Meanwhile, the chancelleries the ar and army staffs do the business of the quote-unquote state. Delo Narada the organ of the ruling class Socialist Revolutionary Party recently admitted in the leading article with the matchless frankness of people of good society in all are engaged in political prostitution, that even in the ministries headed by the quote-unquote socialist, save the mark, the whole bureaucratic apparatus is in fact unchanged, is working in the old way and quite freely sabotaging revolutionary measures. Even without this admission, does not the actual history of the participation of the socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks in the government prove this? It is noteworthy, however, that in the ministerial company of the cadets, the Chernovs, Rusinovs, Zenzianovs, and other editors of Delo Narada have so completely lost all sense of shame as so to brazenly assert, as if it were a mere bagatelle, that in their ministries everything is unchanged. Revolutionary democratic phases to the gull rural simple Simons and bureaucracy and red tape to the quote-unquote gladden the hearts of capitalists, that is the essence of the quote-unquote honest coalition. The commune substitutes for the venal and rotten 
parliamentarianism of bourgeois society, institutions in which freedom of opinion and discussion does not degenerate into deception. For the parliamentarians themselves have to work, have to execute their own laws, have themselves to test the results achieved in reality, and do not account directly to their constituents. Representative institutions remain, but there is no parliamentarianism here as a special system as the division of labor between the legislative and executive, as a privileged position for the deputies. We cannot imagine democracy, even proletarian democracy, without representative institutions, but we can and must imagine democracy without parliamentarianism. If criticism of bourgeois society is not mere words for us, if the desire to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie is our earnest and sincere desire and not a mere quote-unquote election cry for catching workers' votes as it is with the Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries and also the Shademans and Legions, the Schmemblots and Vandervelds, it is extremely instructive to note that in speaking of the function of those officials who are necessary for the commune and for proletarian democracy, Marx compares them to the workers of every other employer, that is, of ordinary capitalist enterprise, with which, quote, workmen's, foremen's, and accountants, end quote. There is no trace of utopianism in Marx, in the sense that he made up or invented a new society. No, he studied the birth of the new society out of the old, and the forms of transition from the latter to the former, as a mass proletarian movement, and tried to draw practical lessons from it. He quote-unquote learned from the commune, just as all great revolutionary thinkers learned unhesitatingly from the experience of great movements of the oppressed classes, and never addressed them with the pedantic homilies such as Poleknov's they should not have taken up arms, or Tsarely's a class must limit itself. Abolishing the bureaucracy at once, everywhere and completely, is out of the question. It is a utopia. But to smash the old bureaucratic machine at once, and to begin immediately to construct a new one that will make possible the gradual abolition of all bureaucracy, this is not a utopia. It is the experience of the commune, the direct and immediate task of the revolutionary proletariat. Capitalism simplifies the functions of the quote-unquote state administration. It makes possible to cast bossing aside and to confine the whole matter of the organization of the proletarians as the ruling class, which will hire workers, foremen, and accountants in the name of the whole society. We are not utopians. We do not, quote-unquote, dream of dispensing at once with all administration, with all subordination. These anarchist dreams, based upon incomprehension of the tasks of the proletarian dictatorship, are totally alien to Marxism. As a matter of fact, serve only to postpone the socialist revolution until people are different. No, we want the socialist revolution with the people as they are now, with people who cannot dispense with subordination control and foremen and accountants. The subordination, however, must be to the armed vanguard of all the exploited working people, i.e. to the proletariat. A beginning can and must be made at once, overnight, to replace the specific bossing of state officials by the simple functions of foremen and accountants. 
functions which are already fully within the ability of the average town dweller and can be well performed for workmen's wages. We, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, relying on our own experiences as workers, establishing strict iron discipline backed by the state power of armed workers. We shall reduce the role of state officials to that of simply carrying out our instructions as responsible, revocable, modestly paid foremen and accountants, of course, with the aid of technicians of all sorts, types, and degrees. This is our proletarian task. This is what we can and must start with in accomplishing the proletarian revolution. Such a beginning on the basis of large-scale production will of itself lead to the gradual withering away of all bureaucracy, to the gradual creation of an order, an order without inverted commas, an order bearing no similarity to wage slavery, an order under which the functions of control and accounting become more and more simple, will be performed by each in turn, will then become habit, and will finally die out as the special functions of the special section of the population. A witty German social democrat of the 70s of the last century called the Postal Service an example of the socialist economic system. This is very true. At the present, the postal system is a business organized on the lines of state capitalist monopoly. Imperialism is gradually transforming all trusts into organizations of a similar type, in which standing over the quote-unquote common people who are overworked and starved, one has the same bourgeois bureaucracy. But the mechanism of social management is here already to hand. Once we have overthrown the capitalists, crushed the resistance of the exploiters with the iron hand of the armed workers, and smashed the bureaucratic machinery of the modern state, we shall have a splendidly equipped mechanism, freed from the quote-unquote parasite, a mechanism which can very well be set going by the united workers themselves, who will hire technicians, foremen, and accountants, and pay them all as indeed a quote-unquote state, officials, and general workmen's wages. Here is a concrete, practical task which can immediately be fulfilled in relation to all trusts, a task whose fulfillment will rid the working people of exploitation, a task which takes account of what the commune has already begun to practice, particularly in building up the state. To organize the whole economy on the lines of the postal service so that the technicians, foremen, and accountants, as well as the all the other officials, shall receive salaries no higher than a quote-unquote workman's wage, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat. That is our immediate aim. This is what will bring about the abolition of parliamentarianism and the preservation of representative institutions. This is what will rid the laboring classes of the bourgeoisie's prostitution of these institutions. Part 4. Organization of National Unity Quote, In a brief sketch of national organization which the commune has no time to develop, it states explicitly that the commune was to be the political form of even the smallest village, end quote. The communes were to elect the national delegation in Paris. Quote, the few but important functions which would still remain for a central government were not to be suppressed, as had been deliberately misstated, but were to be transformed to communal, i.e. strictly responsible, officials. Ellipses. 
National unity was not to be broken, but, on the contrary, organized by the communal con constitution. It was to become a reality by the destruction of state power which was posed at the embodiment of that unity, yet wanted to be independent of, and superior to, the nation, on whose body it was but a parasitic excreance, while the merelessly repressive organs of the old governmental power were to be amputated, its legitimate functions were to be rest wrested from an authority claiming the right to stand above society and restored to the responsible servants of society. End quote. The extent to which the opportunists of present-day social democracy have failed, perhaps it would be more true to say, have refused to understand these observations of Marx is best shown by that book of Herostratonian fame of the renegade Bernstein, The Premises of Socialism and the Task of the Social Democrats. It is in connection with the above passage from Marx that Bernstein wrote that, quote, as far as its political content, this program displays in all its essential features the greatest similarity to the federalism of proud Hahn, in spite of all the other points and difference of difference between marx and the quote-unquote petty bourgeois proud Hahn, bernstein places the word petty bourgeois in inverted commas to make it sound ironical on these points of their lines of reasoning run as close as could be end quote of course bernstein continues the importance of the municipalities is growing but quote it seems doubtful to me whether the first job of democracy would be such a disillusion of the modern states and such a complete transformation of their organization as is visualized by Marx and Proudhon, the formation of a national assembly from delegates of the provincial districts' assemblies, which in their turn would consist of delegates from the communes, so that consequently the previous mode of national representation would disappear. End quote. Bernstein Premises, German edition, 1899, page 134 and 136. To confuse Marx's view on the quote-unquote destruction of power and a parasitic exorcism with Proudhon's federalism is positively monstrous, but it is no accident, for it never occurs to the opportunist that Marx does not speak here at all about federalism as opposed to centralism, but about smashing the old bourgeois state machine which exists in all bourgeois countries. The only thing that does occur to the opportunist is what he sees around him in an environment of petty bourgeois philistinianism and reformist stagnation, namely only quote-unquote municipalities. The opportunist has even grown out of the habit of thinking about proletarian revolution. It is ridiculous. But the remarkable thing is that nobody argued with Bernstein on this point. Bernstein has been refuted by many, especially by Plenkanov in Russian literature and by Kotsky in European literature. But neither of them has said anything about this distortion of Marx by Bernstein. The opportunist has so much forgotten how to think in revolutionary way and to dwell on revolution that he attributes quote-unquote federalism to Marx whom he confuses with the founder of anarchism, <laughs> Proudhon. As for Kotsky and Plenkanov, who claim to be orthodox Marxists and defenders of the theory of revolutionary Marxism, they are silent on this point. 
here is one of the roots of the extreme vulgarization of the views on the difference between Marxism and anarchism, which is characteristic of both Kotskyites and the opportunists, and which we shall discuss again later. There is not a trace of federalism in Marx's above-quoted observation on the experience of the commune. Marx agreed with Proudhon on the very point that the opportunist Bernstein did not see. Marx disagreed with Proudhon on the very point which Bernstein found similarity between them. Marx agreed with Proudhon that they both stood for the quote-unquote smashing of the modern state machine. Neither the opportunists nor the Kotskyites wished to see the similarity of views on this point between Marxism and anarchism, both Proudhon and Bakunin, because this is where they have departed from Marxism. Marx disagreed with both Proudhon and Bakunin precisely on the question of federalism, not to mention the dictatorship of the proletariat. Federalism as a principle follows logically from the petty bourgeois views of anarchism. Marx was a centralist. There is no departure whatever from centralism in his observations just quoted. Only those who are imbued with the Philistine superstitious belief in the state can mistake the destruction of the bourgeois state machine for the destruction of centralism. Now, if the proletariat and the poor peasants take state power into their own hands, organize themselves quite freely in communes, and unite the action of all the communes in striking at capital, in crushing the resistance of capitalists, and transferring the privately owned railways, factories, land, and so on, to the entire nation, to the whole society, won't that be centralism? Won't that be the most consistent democratic centralism and, moreover, proletarian centralism? Bernstein simply cannot conceive of the possibility of voluntary centralism, of the voluntary fusion of the proletarian communes for the sole purpose of destroying bourgeois rule and the bourgeois state machine. Like all Philistines, Bernstein pictures centralism as something which can be imposed and maintained solely from above and solely by the bureaucracy and military clique. As though foreseeing that his views might be distorted, Marx expressly emphasized that the charge that the commune had wanted to destroy national unity to abolish the central authority was a deliberate fraud. Marx purposefully used the words, quote, national unity was to be organized, end quote, so as to oppose conscious democratic proletarian centralism to bourgeois military bureaucratic centralism. But there are none so deaf as those who will not hear. And the very thing the opportunists of present-day social democracy do not want to hear about is the destruction of state power, the amputation of parasitic exorcists. Part 5. Abolition of the Parasite State We have already quoted Marx's words on the subject, and now we must supplement them. Quote, it is generally the fate of new historical creations, he wrote, to be mistaken for the counterpart of older and even defunct forms of social life to which they may bear a certain likeness. Thus, this new commune, which breaks the modern state power, has been regarded as a revival of medieval communes, as a federation of small states, as Montesquieu and Girondin visualized it as an exaggerated form of the old struggle against over-centralization. Ellipses. The commune constitution would have restored to the social body all forces hitherto absorbed by that parasitic excrescence 
the quote-unquote state feeding upon and hammering the free movement of society. By this one act, it would have initiated the regeneration of France. Ellipses. The communal constitution would have brought the rural producers under the intellectual lead of the central towns of their district, and their secured to them. In the town work, working men, the natural trustees of their interests, the very existence of the commune involved, as a matter of course, local self-government, but no longer as a counterpoise to state power, now becomes superfluous. End quote. Breaking state power, which has a parasitic exorcence, its amputation and its smashing, state power uh, now becomes superfluous. These are expressions Marx used in regard to the state when appraising and analyzing the experience of the commune. All this was written a little less than half a century ago, and now one has to engage in evacuations, as it were, in order to bring undistorted Marxism to the knowledge of the mass of people, the conclusions drawn from the observation of the last great revolution which Marx lived through were forgotten just when the time for the next great proletarian revolution has arrived. Quote, the municipality of interpretations to which the commune has been subjected and the municipality of interests which express themselves in it show that it was a thoroughly flexible political form while all previous forms of government had been essentially repressive. Its true secret was this. It was essentially a working-class government, the result of the struggle of producing against the appropriating class, the political form at last discovered under which economic emancipation of labor could be accomplished. Quote again, Except on this last condition, the communal constitution would have been an impossibility and a delusion, end quote. The utopians busied themselves with, quote-unquote, discovering political forms under which the socialist transformation of society was to take place. The anarchists dismissed the question of political forms altogether. The opportunists of present-day social democracy accepted the bourgeois political forms of the parliamentary democratic state as the limit which should not be overstepped. They battered their foreheads, praying before this quote-unquote model, and denounced as anarchism every desire to break these forms. Marx denounced from the whole history of socialism and the political struggle that the state was bound to disappear, and that the transitional form of its disappearance, the transition from state to non-state, would be the quote-unquote proletariat organizes the ruling class. Marx, however, did not set out to discover the political forms of this future stage. He limited himself to carefully observing French history, to analyzing it, and to drawing the conclusion to which the year 1851 had led, namely, that matters were moving towards the destruction of the bourgeois state machine. And when the mass revolutionary movement of the proletariat burst forth, Marx, in spite of its failure, in spite of its short life and patent weakness, began to study the forms it had discovered. Commune is the form at last discovered by the proletarian revolution, under which the economic emancipation of labor can take place. The commune is the first attempt by a proletarian revolution to smash the bourgeois state machine, and it is the political form at last discovered by which the smashed state machine can and must be replaced. We shall see further on that the Russian revolutions of 1905 and 1907 
in different circumstances and under different conditions, continue the work of the commune and confirm Marx's brilliant historical analysis. All right, so that was chapter three, and next will be chapter four, Supplementary Explanations by Engels. Thanks. <laughs>